Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. This year, the theme of Radio BX is radical scale, the people, processes, and technology that will ensure our buildings meet the dramatic needs of our future. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2021 sponsor, National Grid. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Hello and welcome to Radio BX. Today we are talking with Susan Ubaloda, who leads with her partner, George Loisis, a rather unconventional practice that offers a really exceptional mix of creativity and deep technical skills that I'm not sure is replicated uh, by any firm in the country. They are recognized as leaders in areas as diverse as energy conservation, natural ventilation, and lighting design, and are truly at the forefront of daylighting design, a subject they have been studying and working on longer than most any other firm. They work closely with academic researchers, including our friends at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, and have played critical roles in half a dozen lead platinum buildings and several net zero carbon buildings, including the NASA sustainability-based project with William McDonough and partners. They have contributed to many high-profile projects, including here in New York City, the New York Times building and the Fifth Avenue Apple Store. Susan is Professor Emerita at UC Berkeley School of Architecture, and I learned in my research that Susan and I uh, share an alma mater, having both graduated from the University of Oregon School of Architecture. But the reason I know of Susan's work is through one of our founding board members here and close friend of Building Energy Exchange, Jan Berman of Mecco Shade. So we owe Jan a word of thanks for introducing us. Susan, welcome to Radio BX. Thank you. It's uh, wonderful to be here. I visited your space when it was just starting. And it's really nice yeah. that things continue. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the space today, which is, which is a nice, <laughs> nice change of pace over the last, uh, last year or more. Susan, uh, when you studied architecture, uh, was sustainability a primary focus of your work, even as a student? It was. It was dead center. I went to Oregon to study theory. Hmm. Um, as we talked about, uh, a lot of people from Khan's office and his master's studio had ended up teaching at Oregon. Yeah. And that's why I went for graduate school. Um, <clears throat> but I come from a family who were very active politically on the left. And uh, when I said I wanted to be an architect, they were appalled. Every, all the architects they knew were non-political. Mm. So I, I um, was trying to explain to them that architecture could also be a political profession. Right. And when I arrived at Oregon, um, I discovered um, uh, John Reynolds and Charlie Brown, who were uh, in the vanguard of passive solar design, I think we called it then. <laughs> and I took classes from them and also was a, a research assistant and a teaching assistant with them and helped write a book when I was a graduate student of exercises, thereby allay, allaying my parents' fears a little bit that I had gone <laughs> off to the dark right. side. <laughs> <laughs> um. Do you think there was something about your studies at Oregon that led you to have such a strong focus on combining 
academic research within your design practice? Yes, I would actually put it the other way that I would combine both the technical and the design. Yeah. In most schools, there is a total split. In my first school of, for architecture at Michigan, yeah. there were consulting engineers who taught all the technical classes. <laughs> right. And at Oregon, every faculty at that point, every faculty member also taught studio so that all of the subjects were brought and threaded through design yeah. work. And, and I think it was really unusual and still yeah. is actually. Yeah. And you began focusing on daylighting quite early on. Was sustainability or the environmental impact the sort of driver for that focus or was it more about the quality of the physical environment? My interest was in um, the quality of the, of the physical environment, definitely. But what was interesting, I took one of the first daylighting classes in the country, other than one that was taught by Marietta Millett at Washington. Um, <clears throat> it was taught by Charlie Brown. And it was a matter of uh, observing spaces, measuring them in person, and then going through a series of calculation techniques to see whether any of the numerical strategies or tools could explain what was happening in the real space. And that connecting of uh, ob observing and experiencing in real time, photographing and then measuring and then building models using numbers, using nomographs, et cetera, right. um, was again, I think a, an object lesson, although I didn't understand it at that time, in um, understanding that there were ways of quantifying experiences that we always thought in terms of quality. Yeah. I want to ask a little bit more about the discipline uh, of, of daylighting because I think it's changed a huge amount across your career and you've kind of, in a way played a, a, a direct role in a lot of those changes. Mm -hmm. um, but there have been, you know, one way of looking at this is through tools. Like there's been a huge advancement uh, in the tools. Um, from like manual solar shade calculators, which is what I was using when I was at Oregon, the, the turning. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and now we have this highly advanced software that you know models actual daylighting levels. So I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about those advancements and maybe your role in them over the years. Yeah, when I was at Oregon, late 70s, um, there was a, I think a Lisa Macintosh, uh, and I was a, I actually put myself through school, both by farming in the summer, being a farmhand, but also by operating computer systems for universities. Wow. And so I was a computer operator at Oregon. <laughs> um, and we did everything sort of over teletypes, right? With mainframes. So what was available were th basically physical models that had been, you know, sort of developed as a tool in the 30s and 40s. Um, and right. uh, nomograms where you went from one chart to another chart to another chart to calculate as a way of, of uh, making graphic numerical calculators. And people were experimenting with graphic methods of, um, of predicting daylighting levels, but really the physical model was the only thing that worked and it worked beautifully. Um, and then when I started teaching, uh, I guess along, I th I'm thinking about probably seven or eight years into teaching in the late 80s, there were a number of uh, 
what do we call them, microcomputer programs um, for desktop early desktop machines <laughs> uh, that uh, uh, various faculty were writing to calculate daylighting. They had a sense wow. that there were, you know, since there were numbers behind this, you must be able to get it into the computer somehow. Right, right. I did a research project taking a very simple one-room Carnegie Library built in 1913 in St. Paul, Minnesota, and looked at a set of eight different computer programs to see if they could, if they could predict what the lighting, daylighting would be like in this box. Right, right. And it was a catastrophe, not a single one of them. <laughs> uh, you, they couldn't handle windows that were tall. They couldn't handle more than one window on a side. They couldn't handle trees outside. They couldn't handle a high ceiling. It was just like, it, it was unbelievable. Wow. The amount of things that happen in reality in real architecture that computer programs were not even thinking about. And I repeated that 10 years later after I got to Berkeley. Um, with a set of four pieces of software that proved to that promised to be you know significantly more sophisticated, um, including Lightscape, which was being right. used um, in the uh, graphics industry, the animation industry, mm. and the early early Radiance that Greg Ward had just released, basically, and then we tested those against uh, again a a box of real architecture, uh, which was Stanley Sadowitz's own office in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Which had, uh, it, was, it was a very uh, clean box, but it had a big bay window pushed out and it had a, a triangular uh, monitor and it had urban context. And, right, and we measured, measured that, we did physical models because we knew they were tested, you know, we could make them accurately. And we looked at these four different pieces of software and Radiance was remarkably accurate. It was very impressive. The problem with Radiance is that it took about three years to know what you were doing. <laughs> and the truth is we've been using, uh, <clears throat> and, and so I published papers on these and, and um, sort of, uh, I guess, poked the daylighting world that was beginning to form in the 90s into thinking about not, not validating the software with uh, shiny globes and unreal boxes, but actually to look what's happening out in the world of architecture. Right. At that point, sort of the blobosphere was coming. <laughs> uh, digital design was raising its head and, and there was nothing uh, except radiance that could begin to, to deal with the kind of architecture people were designing. Yeah, yeah. And, and it took, um, you know, we had, we had a couple people in our office that really did spend three years learning how to wow. use, and use the software Luckily, we're very close to Lawrence Berkeley Labs, and we have a close right. relationship with Greg Ward, so um, right. we would take our problems to him. <laughs> <laughs> That's an amazing resource. You really were at the Vanguard. I sort of felt like I was at the Vanguard because my class in 1990 was one of the first that was requiring uh, architecture students to have a computer to, to mm -hmm. start learning CAD. Um, and I, one of the things I remember about that is that the computer that um, 
uh, that you know they recommended you purchase for this. It's claim to fame. The the I think it was a two SI Apple two SI. Its claim to fame was that its hard drive had eighty megabytes. <laughs> so <laughs> big advancement at the time. I did field research uh, for a year on a Fulbright in India in mm -hmm. and one of my colleagues at Berkeley, Chris Benton, helped us. Uh, by and program uh, Campbell Scientific logs, uh, uh, machines that can log all the data and then all the sensors that would tie into them. And we took three full uh, weather station and then uh, a design of a group of sensors so we could sensor light, air, heat, uh, radiant comfort and, and such. And wow. we worked in uh, two uh, buildings by, Lake Corbusier, the mill owners in the Sarabai house. And wow. we, we've sort of uh, monitored their conditions over the course of three different seasons, as well as Khan's IIM and the dormitories and the classroom. Oh, amazing. And um, we were so proud. We bought a, a laptop computer that had the first one with a hard drive, a compact computer, <laughs> and it had 10 megabytes. <laughs> of memory yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we were we were able to drive all of the data loggers we were able to graph data we were able to word process it was yeah a massive advancement at the time and 10 meg <laughs> <laughs> times have changed um you know i think alongside the advancements in tools there's also been some major advancements just in our knowledge about how we interact with daylight, especially in workplaces, and how it impacts our health and well-being. I wonder if you could talk about, you know, what, how those advances have kind of informed your work over these years. So um, maybe one of the driving forces in that arena is Lisa Heshon. Lisa is our our next guest on Radio oh, BX. Actually, yeah. you can ask her how how much she drove this. Um, George, my uh, partner and husband, was actually uh, working as a consultant to the Pacific Energy Center um, here in San Francisco. And he managed to uh, grab some research money. And uh, Lisa's uh, firm, Heshon Mahone Group, did mm -hmm. productivity research um, and looked at school tests. They looked for big data sets that existed. And one was school test scores, how much individual students' test scores advanced from one year to the next. Um, and they looked at daylighted schools compared to not. And they also looked at, uh, they had a really nice data set of a retail store who had acquired another, uh, another company whose uh, stores were daylighted. And what they discovered is that students' test scores increased much more in daylighted schools than in schools with no daylighting. Wow. And that there was, I don't remember what it was, a 40% increase in sales under daylighting in stores. Amazing. And this is actually proven to be true uh, through a whole series of studies. And so it started, I would say it started with productivity because we were still trying to convince people to daylight with savings on energy by turning off electric lights. When lighting controls were in their 
painful inf uh, infancy. <laughs> and uh, we sort of managed to move people from uh, return on, uh, from pay simple payback to return on investment. And then there's a famous chart that I don't know who made it, who said, look, energy costs are 1%, uh, leasing costs are 10%, but labor costs are 100% of yeah. something that can be affected by windows and daylight and skylights. And um, so then we were looking at productivity quantitatively, and it's yeah. proven to be really difficult, but now people understand that knowing what the weather is like and knowing what time of day it is and knowing um, <clears throat> sort of having a way to set your circadian rhythms and to have a view are critical to everyone's well-being, especially people yeah. who are stuck at their desk. Yeah, definitely. And so what we've discovered is that there was a, a very large turnaround and I credit LEAD with all of its difficulties and problems. With LEAD, we were able to put a spreadsheet on the table that competed with value engineering spreadsheet. Mm. So somebody would say, let's get rid of those shading devices. See, it's like $200,000 right here on, on this line in the spreadsheet. And we would say, you lose two lead points. And they would say, oh, we couldn't possibly do that. We're going to have to keep it. <laughs> That morphed into an understanding by people who were, who were having lead as part of their building program that, um, <clears throat> that their labor force was the most costly and most important part of their company. Yeah. And so <clears throat> we've sort of made this, this crazy journey from return on investment to do we have a view? Yeah. Yeah. And what is the visual comfort like? Yeah. Your firm also, and obviously, has significant expertise beyond lighting design. You help projects with a variety of performance modeling. I wonder if you could talk about that work and how the different types of modeling, including daylighting, kind of either dovetail together, together or inform each other. Mm -hmm. So we do... Um, at least as much energy modeling as we do daylight modeling. And we we're using uh, publicly available software for both at a really, I would say a, an extremely advanced level. Right. We're now 25 years in with Radiance. And so we're, yeah. <laughs> we're really pretty good at Radiance. We use it in uh, native Unix. Um, we've tried, We've tried all of these various front ends, and um, as George just likes to say, a scalpel does not a surgeon make. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to know what you're doing, right? Yep. The same is true with energy software. Um, we used Do2 for quite a long time, but thank God Energy Plus was written, and yep. it is unbelievable compared to what the, the 90s and the early plots were like. Um, <clears throat> and we do, so when we use the software, um, there is no easy connection between Radiance and Energy Plus as is. If you're using something like Climate Studio that acts as a front end to both, yeah. then it's easier for you. But you don't, you don't have the ability to toggle what's going on. 
uh, in either. And we have managed to both calibrate and validate radiance, I would say every two years with a real building. Um, we go into a lot of our buildings and, and look at how they're performing relative to the simulations. Um, and the same, we've actually had the same option with uh, energy modeling. We, um, we had, to, had to retro predict the climatic circumstances of a dead body that was part of a murder trial. You're kidding. In the Sacramento <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and what we discovered is that we could do that <laughs> and calibrate. Um, <clears throat> so we're pretty comfortable with our, I guess, with our chops, I guess I would say. <laughs> the brief they don't tell you about in architecture school. That's right. That's right. Um, we have a saying in our office that we, uh, our business plan is that we pick up the phone and say yes. Right. And that was one of those when the, uh, court called and said that they needed some modeling. Um, uh, so, uh, but what we do, what we do, what we have discovered along the way is first that uh, while we do code energy models, they are so uh, constrained in terms of defaults that they don't tell you what the building is doing. They just tell you that you're better than the building you would have built. Right. We uh, do performance modeling so we can actually see what's going to happen in terms of energy flows in the building, but we like to start with comfort modeling. Right. And we start by modeling what the temperatures are going to be like um, inside without any mechanical systems. And if right. we can tune the envelope well enough to reduce the mechanical systems or in fact alter them to a more efficient system, we consider it you know, that we've done good. <laughs> Absolutely. And talk about it as sailing the building. We have a big sailboat that's not in the water. It's um, being forever uh, retrofitted. <laughs> <laughs> and a small sailboat that is in the water. And, um, and we have engines, but they're really only for when we get in trouble. Right. Right. Or we can't use natural forces. And we think buildings should be the same way. It's a wonderful analogy. And it's great to hear you describe using the modeling tools that way. Um, it's a really unique perspective and is one of the frustrations that I know I felt when I was working as an architect, and I know a lot of people do, that the work of architects and engineers are so divorced from one another. And there's rarely a moment, you know, most architects don't know enough about mechanical systems and how building science impacts them to say to the engineer, what if we did X to the envelope? Could we eliminate perimeter heating? And the engineers don't think it's their purview to do that study. They, they are just want to be told what the requirements are in most cases. Right. And, and it, it makes sense within the kind of contractual requirements that each of them have. I think a lot of it has to do, we struggled a great deal um, when we started doing consulting in the 90s, there was no model for what we did. Yeah. The, everyone in our office is an architect. Nobody's an engineer. Yeah. And we um, sort of likened us to the babblefish, <laughs> um, <laughs> where, you know, that magic invention where one language comes in and the other one goes into your brain. And we're sort of the babblefish that sits between engineers and architects on a project. Right. And because architects talk differently and they think differently. 
and one of the things is that architects need certain kinds of information at certain times, which means you have to know how a building is designed and then how it is bid and how it's constructed so that you know what kind of information to feed in. Um, and what they're asking, how like a sixth sense about what they need or actually it's just professional experience. Um, but you also know that engineers, mechanical engineers are basically paid to run one model for code yep. and a second model to size their equipment. They don't want to do any of that until construction documents, right? right. They don't have the budget. Right. Right. And when we invented our firm, um, which was in some ways courtesy of William McDonough, who called us in 95 and said, we need some help on the gap building in 91 right. Ferry, um, <clears throat> which was this really early sort of green roof, daylighted, yeah. floor air building, right? Famous. Um, we didn't know, uh, they called us uh, late design development, early CDs and said, we need, we need some help with this. And then the next project they called us in schematic design, <laughs> schematic design. And then the next project we went to an interview with them. <laughs> and uh, Perfect. it usually takes a couple of projects until we actually are invited to be part of the package and part yeah. of concept design. Um, but it, it makes a big difference if you're part of the project from the beginning. On the other hand, to do daylight consulting at concept design, there were no AIA contracts that actually included anything like that. Right. Almost all of the C-series contracts started at design development. Right. And they, came, they finally came up with an integrated design contract that, right. that began to show what it was that we had been doing for... God, at that point, it was at least 15 years. Yeah. Um, but just having not having a contract available was uh, actually quite an obstacle. <laughs> it could be, definitely. Let me just add that we were just hired on two different projects with very large multinational firms to do big university buildings. And one institution had never had a daylighting consultant on a project ever in wow. 2021 and they we had to spend a few calls explaining to them why it might benefit the project even though the wow. architects knew <laughs> the other project the architect had never worked with the daylighting consultant they just figured they knew how to do it or right. they would just use the curtain wall consultant to get the curtain wall right right so they had to also explain so it's not like we we're um just a normal thing <laughs> yeah, there's still a lot of work to do is one of the takeaways, yeah. I guess, right? One of the really wonderful aspects of your work is that you also focus on sculptural lighting projects, art pieces. When we have the chance, yes. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and I would, I'd love to know how you began working in that space, because it's really unusual for a working technical professional to also be producing art pieces. Well, we always think of ourselves as design slash technical or technical slash design um, in that we also do uh, small, usually off the grid work, design right. work. Right. Um, we were asked to come onto a project at Caltech where they were renovating a 1930s astrophysics lab uh, into a laboratory building for climate scientists. And we were just asked to do daylighting. And, uh, but there was a matter of concern in that the building had uh, 
two telescopes in it. One was a regular star telescope. Um, right. And that was out of date and old and they were getting rid of it. And the other was one of the first solar telescopes that, that is used during the day to bring direct sun, beam direct sun into the building. And um, George is an amateur astronomer. And so when he went to a meeting and saw the drawings of the building done by the original uh, man who designed the telescope, he recognized them. He had seen them in astronomy books. Wow. And he poked around and looked um, more closely and uh, got copies of them and realized that this was was a really seminal piece of work in astronomy. Yeah. And so he made an impassioned presentation to the building donor and the faculty uh, to save the telescope and in fact clean it up, re-silver the mirrors, computer uh, drive it in a reactivation and to beam the sun down and we then, and it worked. <laughs> the donor gave money. Uh, we worked with an incredible uh, uh, telescope uh, equipment. Uh, I don't know, Maven, I guess I would call, um, who uh, did all the programming and, uh, and hooked up all the electronics. We wow. got the mirrors resilvered by one of the university labs. And we designed these fiber optic fixtures that would scoop up the light coming down this, this uh, like six story uh, shaft and, uh, and spread daylight into the laboratory's below grade. Wow. As well as having an image that was projected in the library real time of the sun. So now when the Venus transit happened at Caltech, there were crowds <laughs> in the building watching Venus go across the sun in this real-time image. Incredible. So that was an incredible opportunity. Um, and we had decided early on we would never do beam daylighting because we didn't think it was useful daylighting for people in a building. Right. Um, but... Uh, we got a lot of, of questions about, uh, are you going to do this again? And George would say, well, if somebody hires us to build the telescope, if somebody has a telescope <laughs> they want to use for this, we're happy to do it. <laughs> and somebody actually then hired us to build the telescope to beam daylight to make an art piece. Wow. So we built a 20-foot tracking telescope with an 8-foot mirror that tracks the sun every day and beams it through a series of mirrors down a 16 story shaft into a sort of reverse wedding cake of fiber optics. And mm. the fiber optics are lit by the daylight. And where is that? It's in New York city. It's here in New York. Yeah. Wow. If you walk down eighth Avenue, you can see it um, uh, between 15th and 16th. We will check, we'll check it out soon. You can just see the telescope. Nobody's allowed in to see the... I mean, has this informed your regular, sort of regular, quote-unquote, design work? Do you, you know, there are these systems now that, that right. you know, pull light down through solar tubes and things like that into otherwise inaccessible spaces. I think we know what the limitations of those systems are. Yeah. Basically. And we know now how to, uh, how to make them. I think they work better as art. Yeah. Um, very honestly. Yeah. 
sure. But we're, we're, we, uh, yeah, I would just say we know all the constraints. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so this has been great. Uh, I sort of final question is I want to, um, I'm just sort of wondering from your perspective, we're sort of all emerging from this year of COVID and sort of curious what actions you're seeing either within your own firm or from peers that is making you sort of hopeful about the coming year. Well, um, first of all, our, our office is small. We're 13 people. We have been in a very odd situation of uh, having our old office, which we were in for nearly 15 years, uh, raised last May. <laughs> wow. As uh, we, we sent everybody home in March. We all went home in March. And then um, we knew it was coming, uh, but it, the building was just like taken down for a big housing development. And um, wow. We had found a new place, but it was an, it's an old Navy uh, hangar that needs needed huge amount of retrofit. And so we've right. been in, at home in, but working on construction. This is my, this is our, our um, future lighting lab. Okay. We uh, just got our occupancy permit last week. Oh, wow. <laughs> And we're trying to get our furniture cleaned up so we can move it in. The hopeful piece of this is that our staff, all of our people in the office who've been in their houses for 15 months are so desperate to come back to work. Right. They just are just so happy about the fact that they're going to be back together again. We discovered that we are, we can do quite good work while we're gone. Uh, While we're working independently and through, through zoom and, all the other programs, but it's much harder to create new things and new ways of thinking when you're on a screen. Um, That's a really good distinction. And we're really looking forward to actually having new ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Also, I think our, um, our phone did start ringing. 2020 was a really tough year. We ended up with maybe less than a third of the number of projects that came in as we have had consistently since, I don't know, 2004. Wow. And, um, and it, things are on a much better trajectory this year with also very interesting projects. That is great to hear. We, and that's, uh, my sense is that most people, who we work with have stayed in business. I have, I don't actually know anybody who's closed their office. They've reshaped their offices. Sure. But some people, uh, some colleagues have a lot of work. Yeah. And there's a sense that, um, yeah, that we're in the, af- that we're beginning to see the after times, I guess I would say. <laughs> yeah. It's a good way of putting it. Well, Susan, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. It was an honor to be asked. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having new ideas. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and please um, please visit us next time you're in New York City. And we'll do the same. I definitely will. Great. Great. Have a great day. Thank you again. You're welcome. Bye.